Good evening, everybody, um, or perhaps it's good morning or good afternoon if you're watching this on Catch Up. Um, my name is Stephen Harrow. I'm a consultant clinical oncologist at Edinburgh Cancer Centre. So thanks very much for joining um, this webinar um, entitled How do we harness functional imaging information um, in radiotherapy? Um, I think this is something that's really going to become quite important um, in radiotherapy um, over the next decade. Um, we've got three excellent speakers um, who are going to discuss various aspects um, of this topic for you. We've got a few slides I need to go through first of all. Um, sponsorship um, of um, BTOG, the sponsors of this and any BTOG event do not have any role whatsoever in the planning content delivery of material pre presented. Um, BTOG, I'm very um, pleased to, to welcome you to this event. Um, the um, details on how to contact BTOG are on the um, slides there, slide here, and I'm very grateful to Don McKinley and Gina Stevens for organising um, this event for us today. So um, just some general housekeeping um, before we start, you can submit text questions by typing your questions via the control panel. This is on the right of your screen, I understand. You can do this at any time for the Q&A at the end of each presentation. So we'll have three talks, um, 15 minutes and then five minutes of questions. We'll send you an email um, to give you um, to give your feedback. It's really important that we get feedback on these so that we can make these events better. And when we receive your um, feedback, um, we'll be able to send you a certificate of, of um, attendance. There are, um, should hopefully be CPD associated with this. We're still waiting to have that confirmed, but um, it's never been a problem before. So we're quite confident that it's just um, delayed in getting um, the necessary um, approval, but should be one CPD for this event. So the agenda is as follows. Um, we're going to start off with um, Rishi Ramesh, who is a consultant colleague of mine in Edinburgh. Um, he's a consultant radiologist with an interest in functional imaging. Um, he's going to talk to us um, on a talk titled Precision Imaging in the Area of Precision Medicine. Then we're going to um, move to Craig Dick, who uh, is another colleague of mine, um, who's a consultant and pathologist um, over in Glasgow. Um, we've been doing some research work together, and he's going to talk about integrating radiological and digital pathology images, the things that cannot be seen. And finally, we're going to um, have Jeff Higgins, who trained with me um, during the FRCR, is now a professor down in um, Oxford, um, and his talk's titled Clinical Trials Utilising Hypoxia PET CT Imaging. So try to, to draw in the functional imaging um, um, in, and explain how we're doing that within current clinical trials. So um, without further ado, um, I'll pass over to, to Rishi. Um, who's going to give us the first talk. Thanks very much, Rishi. Um, I've entitled this talk, Precision Imaging in the Era of Precision Medicine. And these are my declarations here. So the purpose of this talk, I thought, was to spend the next 15 minutes looking at over the horizon and looking to see what sort of innovative and novel imaging technologies and techniques are going to be um, coming into clinical practice and how they might help with radiotherapy and oncological management. The two topics I wanted to touch upon was a very novel pet tracer called FAPI and what role it might play. And secondly, uh, which is a research interest of mine, um, using radiomics and machine learning to help guide oncological treatment. So the state of play currently with regards to pet imaging is that FDG PET forms the fundamental basis of our 
um, oncological staging as radiologists. It's it, it's used in um, lung cancer for staging, but also um, to plan radiotherapy. But the more we use it, the more, more we understand that there are clear limitations in the technology. FTG PET relies on hypermetabolism, and that means realistically it needs a critical mass of abnormal cells for us to be able to confidently detect it on CT. And that is in the region of about 10 to the power of seven cells equal to about one cubic centimeter. This is particularly challenging in nodal disease where we can have low grade uptake or disease um, with the nodes that are macroscopic, microscopic, which we don't particularly see. It can also lack specificity. So FTG PET cannot really tell the difference between a malignant focus in the lung and a focus of infection. It also struggles to differentiate between what's central obstructing tumor and uh, what has collapsed lung distal to that, making uh, volumetric analysis very difficult. It can also have normal physiological uptake, for example, mediastinal fat uptake, which you can see over there, where, which can mimic and mask mediastinal nodal disease. And similarly, other disease processes, for example, sarcoidosis can mask um, underlying pathologies. So it's clear that despite all its advantages, FDG PET does require, um, does have certain limitations, and there is perhaps an unmet need for better imaging in oncology. So FAPI PET is an interesting radio tracer, and it's only been around for the last eight, um, five or six years. FAPI stands for fibroblast activation protein enzyme inhibitor, and it relies on the fact that um, most cancers have overexpression of, of fibroblasts. And it's emerged as a pan-oncological tracer and as some potential address some of the shortcomings of FDG PET. So um, fibroblast activated protein is, is a membrane-bound glycoprotein and it's upregulated in lung cancer. So much so that it's not really expressed in normal tissue, which means that it ha has a very high tumor to background ratio. And it means that uh, it has the potential to offer much better um, de delineation and demarcation of the tumor. Importantly, um, the stroma, which the fibroblasts are originated from, make up up to 90% of the tumor mass, meaning that we can be much potentially much more accurate in stratifying the extent of the disease. From a patient point of view, it's, it's um, internalized rapidly, meaning that you don't have the long wait before the patients have to go for imaging and they can be imaged after 10 minutes or so. So let's have a look at some of the evidence for FAPI thus far. So this paper was published back in 2018 and was one of the first of its kind to use FAPI as a pan-oncological tracer. And the results were certainly very interesting. It showed uptake in over 28 different types of cancers, including cancers, for example, prostate and colorectal cancers that are particularly poorly assessed with FDG. The early data was very promising, FAPI-PET was able to detect small volumes of disease that conventional imaging and FDG-PET wasn't able to, and in small cohorts, it resulted in a change in oncological management and a change in the overall stage of the patient. There has been growing interest in applying this to more targeted um, studies, and this study was just out this year, was a direct comparison between FDG-PET and FAPI-PET. This was a small-scale prospective study, and it looked at patients that had stage four metastatic lung cancer. 
and they went F underwent FTG and PapiPet independently, but within a short time frame. And the results certainly were very promising. So the image on, on the left here is taken from this paper, and it demonstrates the um, FDG scan on the left and the FAPI PET scan on the right. And you can see how the disease within the pleura and the disease with adjacent to the es esophagus there has much higher SCD values compared to the background and is much easier depicted on the FAPI PET CT. Similarly, when we looked at the brain, we know that FDG PET is very poor at assessing brain metastases. If you have a look at the bottom corner there with the FDG uh, PET compared to the FAPI, we can see how much easier the brain metastasis is seen on, on the FAPI PET scan. And similarly, with mediastinal nodal disease, you can see that the FAPI PET depicts it much more clearly. So the key findings, it has a higher tumor to background ratio. It detects more mediastinal nodal disease. It's much better at detecting pleural disease and therefore has a potential to impact staging and treatment of these patients. And a small prospective cohort study in head and neck cancer has used FAPI to help delineate um, tumor volumes for radiotherapy. And their results also demonstrated a very good tumor to background ratio between normal uh, structures in the head and neck and abnormal primary tumor, as well as the lymph nodes and distant metastases. This study, even though it was small, used FAPI-PET to help plan their radiotherapy. And they demonstrated that if you combine FAPI-PET with normal conventional imaging, you get far higher um, GTDs than you would otherwise. So FAPI alone resulted in a 54% increase in the tumor volume, whereas if you combine FAPI with CT, you get a 200% increase in the um, tumor volume, according to this paper. And similarly, there is emerging data in local disease in lung cancer. This paper um, out a couple of years ago, again, has, a, has, has small numbers, but again, demonstrated a similar finding of having very good background uh, to tumor ratios and also demonstrating an inc a, a increased volume in um, tumor when you compared it to conventional CT. What's also very interesting is that a pathological correlation has demonstrated that fibroblast activated stroma um, uh, is, is upregulated in, in pathological tissue. So it means that it is, uh, it is linked to, the, uh, to things like increased therapy resistance, likelihood of tumor recurrence, and has, has a potential role for um, poorer prognosis. Having a non-invasive way of measuring it using FAPI-PET has the potential to provide lots of valuable information and potentially um, enable innovative and precise um, radiotherapy escalation plans for these patients. And with that in mind, I want to quickly touch upon radiomics, which is a research interest of mine, um, and just explain what it is and how it might help with radiotherapy. So radiomics is a novel and uh, evolving concept where we apply machine learning techniques to imaging data. We use advanced mathematical analysis to extract features and biochemical markers based on these large data sets. The underlying hypothesis is that these imaging biomarkers can predict certain pathological and phenotypical features and even predict oncological response. It is a very new field, but the data is ever evolving and there have been a number of studies published 
And there's, there was a meta-analysis published this year that uh, has some important pointers. The key thing about this meta-analysis though is a lot of these studies have not had external validation, but we, so we do have to take some of this data with a pinch of salt. Nonetheless, uh, this meta-analysis discovered 30 patients with almost 5,000, uh, sorry, 30 studies with almost 5,000 patients uh, who had imaging uh, before they underwent conventional radiotherapy. Several of these studies applied radiomic data to PET uh, imaging and discovered that they could predict overall survival in early disease and locally advanced disease based on radiomic analysis. Similarly, by using the um, pretreatment CT, radiomics could predict those patients who would go on to develop pulmonary toxicity far more accurately uh, than previous methods. And, this, and there are similar emerging data for stereotactic radiotherapy as well. Again, there are a number of studies that could predict local control for patients undergoing SABER. And quite importantly, um, radiomic tools have been developed that can help differentiate between post-treatment changes that we expect and local uh, recurrence following treatment. So radiomics is, is an interesting subject, but it has significant limitations. It, at the moment, it is an evolving field, so uh, some of these data hasn't been um, externally validated in other data sets. Before it's applied to clinical practice, it needs to be generalizable. So data that we acquire from uh, certain manufacturers must then be applicable to other manufacturers as well. Nonetheless, I think this is a really interesting and evolving avenue for research. And this graph here was taken from a radiomic study looking at non-small cell lung cancer and demonstrated how if you combine your clinical radiomics and pathological data together, you can predict those of who, who would respond to treatment better than you would with other, other means. So therefore, I think both these um, tools that I've discussed today have enormous potential for the future, um, but clearly a lot more work is needed before uh, we can deliver them to a, a large cohort of patients. Um, that's that's my time, I think. Stephen, are there any questions for me? Okay, thanks very much, Rishi. Um, that's really interesting. I actually um, never heard of FAPI um, before at all. So um, I suppose that the the um, the question uh, that I would have is: so, so, how likely are we to get FAPI? Um, you know, we've got FDG. Are we likely to get this in the near future or and how easy is it to manufacture in like you know cyclotrons and stuff like that yeah so that's a really good question so the FAPI, sounds fantastic yeah you, absolutely so that's a really good question so the fappy tracer at the moment is based off a a, a gallium um radionucleotide which has a different manufacturing process um there is a growing level of interest amongst the imaging community for fappy and at the moment there are a whole cohort of studies uh, covering a whole gamut of different um, diseases, including cardiology, pancre pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, and that data is emerging. So I think it's going to form part of our toolbox that we as clinical radiologists use to stratify disease. It may not necessarily replace PET, uh, FDG PET, but I think it'll help it just, just in, in the same way that PMSA has become a part of the oncological management of prostate cancer, I think FAPI PET may well become part of the oncological management of things like lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and so on and so forth. 
Okay. Um, another question I got is um, quite often it's very difficult for us to determine leptomeningeal disease. Mm -hmm. Do you think FAPI will pick that up? So if the data so is specific. The data is really promising. So the mm. fact that um, so the one of the key difficulties with conventional imaging is that um, identifying disease on PET is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, the MR is is very very uh, it's it, it's supposed to be pretty good, but 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 the reality is that small micrometastases are impossible to pick up. We know that FAPI can pick up tiny tiny deposits, and I, and I think it it could well be the answer to picking up tiny volumes of disease that we were previously unaware of. Well, right, Rishi, we need to build a project around this. Um, <laughs> I've got um, a question here. So um, let's come in. Um, well, one of it was, how, what's the half-life of FAPI and how, how easy is it to make? Yeah, so FAPI is, uh, as, as with any new um, radionucleotide and radiotracer, it undergoes a whole series of, 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 of radiotracers regulatory clearances. So at the moment, um, there are a number of uh, radio pharmacies around the country that can make FAPI. Um, it, it, it is currently under a research license. If you've got a gallium generator in your hospital, so most centers that offer PMSA will have a gallium generator. Um, so if you've got those two bits, it's a relatively straightforward to manufacture, providing you're willing to go through the regulatory processes. Okay. Um, another question that's come in is, um, when you're doing a, um, a conventional PET CT, you've obviously got quite a lot of blurring, mm. um, you know, because it's acquired over quite a long period of time. Yeah. I know that the injection time was quick and you could scan them, but do you still have to do through that slow scanning procedure? Or yeah, so the scanners have actually got... And, and should yeah, you do so that's, 4D? So that's a really good question. So, the, so firstly, the scanners have got, have got a lot faster. The current generation of scanners can scan a, 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 a whole body in about 25 minutes. We've got new uh, radiomics and artificial intelligence tools that help reduce the blurring. Uh, there are a couple that are already being deployed in clinical practice. So I think the combination of those two, we, um, we're gonna get really good contrast resolution um, and we're potentially gonna uh, improve how, how the, uh, the resolution of, of PET going forward. Great. Uh, one very, very quick question, um, Rishi, is um, do you think there will be progress in using radiomics to diagnose cancer? So there will, there will be use in using artificial intelligence tools to diagnose cancer. So we're already seeing um, lung cancer screening tools that are powered and harnessed by artificial intelligence detection tools. I think the use of radiomics is going to be more for kind of honing your uh, your phenotype and genotype. Um, I think it probably won't be, radiomic tools aren't going to be useful for diagnosing, but they're going to be useful for stratifying risk and guiding management. Okay, right. Well, that, that takes us on then to the pathologist who'll be very grateful that he's not going to be out of a job. So <laughs> thanks very much, Rishi, um, for your talk. Really appreciate it. Uh, so I'll now um, hand over to um, Craig Dick. Um, who is, um, as I said, a consultant um, pathologist in um, Glasgow. Uh, his title of this talk is Integrating Radiological and Digital Pathology Images, the Things That Cannot Be Seen. Thanks very much, Craig. Hi, uh, as Stephen said, I work in Glasgow. It's really nice to have uh, Rishi's talk beforehand because I think it's, uh, the two of us are probably thinking about the same things. Um, this is a photo of the pathology department in Glasgow. It is enormous. 
And it's not the biggest uh, in the UK, it's certainly one of the biggest, and uh, the same applies to Europe. Um, this gives us access to a lot of specimens. Uh, we're a tertiary referral centre, we probably see about two thirds of the lung work for the whole of Scotland, and that's a large number of resection specimens. Um, what I'm going to try and talk to you about today is how all this information that comes in, uh, which has previously just been put onto normal slides, has been digitised and how we can harness that information and data uh, for more accurate diagnosis in pre-clinic or pre-surgical imaging techniques. So the microscope, that was probably first invented around about the 1590s by this chap here. Um, who was a Dutch spectacle, spectacle maker. Um, initially, he could only get about 30 times magnification. By the time Robert Hooke came along, uh, he had managed to increase this to a point where individual cells could be seen, and that took quite a while. Um, and so there's been more iterations of the, uh, the microscope, and the one in the bottom left is probably the one that I started using. The one in the top right is probably the one that you saw at medical school. Um, and this has eventually resulted in um, the situation where the slides are now put into a scanner and scanned and digitized. And I then sit in uh, my office and I have the choice of looking at the glass slides or equally I can look at the screen. Um, and this has lots of different opportunities and challenges. This is essentially the same change that radiology went through quite a while ago. Um, and now everything's digitized in radiology. The key thing to note is we have actually added in an extra step, whereas radiology has effectively taken away one. Um, we still have to make the slides and then we have to scan them. The question is, is this useful uh, for diagnostic pathology? And I suppose the answer this, to this is yes and no. The, Image quality is still not as good as a, a pure microscope. Um, there are speed issues, I think, as well, in terms of reporting. It's good for archiving, but the key thing is it generates data, digital data. And much of that doesn't help you diagnostically. It can help you in other ways. So these are the sort of things that we look at. This is a set of core biopsies for the lung. In a higher power, you can see the anthracotic pigment near the black material. And you can also see some cellular detail at that point. If we go right up to times 400 magnification, which is what this is, you can see cellular structure. There are nuclei and there are nucleoli within that as well. You can see blood vessels, red blood vessels. Red blood vessels are about seven micrometers uh, in maximum dimension. So, and this is obviously stained with a thing called a hematoxin and eosin, which is just a pH stain. Hematoxin will stain acidic things, so that's why the nuclei stains deoxyribonucleic acid. And also um, the pink stain, eosin will stain anything that's uh, alkaline, so it tends to stain protein material and therefore the cell cytoplasm. Now, when we speak about imaging and how that relates to digital pathology, there are three, and how we can co-register this with pre-surgical imaging techniques. There are three or four areas which are of importance, magnification, resolution, co-registration, and also movement. And by movement, I mean movement of 
a patient during imaging techniques. So just to give an idea of magnification, this is approximately, I would say, what the radiologist sees. This is whole body imaging. And then by the time something is removed from a patient and a pathologist studies it, you can actually see down to this level. So you can see the grass. Another analogy of that is, again, this is roughly what a radiologist sees in terms of what's going on from a geographical point of view. Whereas if you have the pathology data, you can actually see down to a, a map-like level, I suppose, with some buildings that you would be able to see. You can see green areas, you'd be able to see where a river is, et cetera. Um, and picking out that sort of detail as a radiologist is virtually impossible. And the question is, how do you get this level of detail, this degree of resolution, and feed it back into imaging techniques? Can you do that? Um, and this is where digitization of pathology can possibly help. So if something is digitized and it becomes binary data, it means it can be analyzed. Um, it means it can be used to inform other diagnostic imaging techniques if you can co-register them. And if you can do that, then it means that you can also extract more information from the functional imaging that has taken place before somebody has undergone surgery. Underpinning a lot of these, um, I suppose, ideas is the potential use of machine learning or artificial intelligence. Um, and that, that's one of these kind of terms that I think is used as a panacea for solving things with big data. And it probably needs a little bit more a direction than just plugging in all the information and hoping for the best. There's also the possibility for multiplexing microscopically, where you're looking at multiple different markers, not just an H and E stain on a, a piece of tissue, and then correlating that back to the gross findings that you had and also the pre-operative imaging techniques. So there, there are a lot of potential uses for this. And then there's another thing called virtual immunohistochemistry, which um, is where you actually just teach a machine to work out what cells are going to stain with. The way this is done is you have an H&E stain and then you bleach that out and carry out immunohistochemistry on it. And so you're, you're actually scanning the exact same slide twice, one which has been stained for your marker, uh, and then you put the two images into the machine learning and it learns without needing to have the stain uh, take place, which cells will stain positively with the marker that you've, um, you've introduced. So there's a, there's a lot of things that can be done, and this is just the tip of the iceberg in relation to it. So co-registration, the co-registration is already done in radiology. You, know, you have your CT, you have your PET CT, and these two images are superimposed on top of one another um, to great effect. And the idea uh, in doing that, I suppose, from uh, an oncology point of view, is that this should hopefully direct treatment in some way or another. So here's a PET CT of somebody with a hyalur mass. There are hot areas, there are not so hot areas. Some people would choose to boost the dose, the hot areas. And the question is, and Rishi has kind of touched on this before, is this the right thing to do? Because this isn't necessarily where the malignant uh, cells are. 
And this you can see quite nicely in the histology if you look at this. Um, this is a whole slide mounts on the top left of a tumour. And then on the bottom left, there is uh, a stain for PDL1, which all of you will be familiar with, I'm sure. And it shows that only part of that tumour is PDL1 positive. So that there's heterogeneity even at a microscopic level. And going back to another PET scan here, if you look at this tumour, again, there are hot areas and cold areas. And the question is, does that actually correlate well with the histology? Well, that area there is probably the entire tumour. And the bit in the middle is just an area of scar tissue, which there are very, very few tumour cells within. Now, that might correlate nicely. Equally, there are other areas within that tumour. Um, in the top area, which are purely not only inflammatory cells, but they will be lighting up as well. And with modern uh, delivery systems for radiotherapy, it offers an awful lot more in terms of where you target and how you target, and also possibly dose limiting for future treatments as well. And there's a lot, of, a lot I think, that pathology can probably offer if we can make sure that the co-registration between pathology and imaging is accurate. So this is the question, can we take this level of detail histologically and then transplant it back into images that we have and use these to learn for the sake of future patients that are not going to undergo surgery, um, but who are going to undergo uh, radiotherapy. And with this in mind, this is a question that Stephen and I had a long time ago now, um, and we have a set up our research project where we are, when we have already um, removed lungs with the help of the Golden Jubilee, we have sectioned these, we have photographed them, we have uh, put the entire tumour through histologically, and we have co-registered these with the various imaging techniques that took place beforehand. And then we have attempted to then transplant the histological features back on to the imaging that took place before the, pa the patient had their uh, lobectomy. And it, in part, it has worked um, and it is useful information and has led to a system which can be harnessed to do this, but there are some problems with it. Um, and these are not insurmountable, they are uh, difficult, but they can probably be resolved. So as you can see, what we've done here is demonstrate that you can take it from the PET through to the fused PET CT, and even just with freehand dissection, you can actually take the tumour and put it back and transpose it on top of the pre-imaging in, or sorry, the pre-surgical imaging. But the question is, can you go back another direction? Can you then take the microscopic information, put that back onto the gross images that you have, and then correlate that or co-register it with the PET-CT? And that was what we tried to do. So how do you start doing that? Well, first of all, you go to Amazon and you buy a bacon slicer, which is exactly what we did in an attempt to regulate the dissection process. And then we realized that, that there was no way that this was going to work. 
So we wrote a grant and we had two P, we've had two uh, PNG students, which are PhD students, and we have asked them to come up with a solution for this. And there are lots of different problems in this. Uh, particularly, there's a disparity in image resolution. Long tissue is very difficult to work with. There is tissue deformation, and it's difficult to do volumetric analysis from 2D data versus 3D data. Uh, and in addition to that as well, there is a big data problem. The images that you have from pathology are absolutely massive. They're you know, orders of magnitude bigger than the, uh, the images that are present in the uh, radiological database. You know, one slide is, is probably around about half a gigabyte to a gigabyte in data. And manipulating that is quite a tricky thing to do. So the workflow plan that we came up with was to reconstruct um, from the tumour that has been removed. And we came up with a dissection rig to do this that regulated it. The long tissue is put into agar. It's sliced at regular five millimetre intervals using um, a measuring tool that we have in relation to this. This allows us to look at the tumour grossly and take photographs of it. The whole tumour is then reconstructed from that. The entire tumour is processed microscopically and we have a grid system to co-register this back to the photographic images that are on the screen just now. So that's actually worked quite nicely. As you can see, this is a, a a photographic makeup of the histological section being put back on top of the photographic section. So we can do that part of it. We also CT'd the tumour when it came out of the patient, but actually that turned out to be of no value. And so we've removed that, uh, that part of the uh, imaging process. And we have also reconstructed the volume from preoperative CT. When you align the preoperative CT with the actual pathology, there is a bit of a discrepancy. Uh, but by and large, it is almost the same shape. And even this, on this one case, it shows how the preop CT in some areas is slightly bigger, but in some other areas misses parts of the tumour. Now comes the tricky part. And the reason it is tricky, and that is movement. So when we try to take the histology back to the fused PET CT images, there's obviously a large movement that we had not uh, reckoned with in relation to the PET. And just because the, the acquiring the images takes so long, there's a great deal of movement um, up to an order of magnitude of 50% in relation to the volume or the maximum diameter of the tumour in terms of movement. And this makes co-registration between the histology and the pathology and the uh, PET-CT virtually useless. And so the solution to this, which we're currently in the process of working on, is to use 4D PET. Uh, and that is our current P 
PEng students assignment. Um, we are a bit start collecting uh, tumours for this in the next month or two, um, and we're hopeful that this is going to resolve the problem and lead to an assay system that can be harnessed not just for PET CT uh, or FDG PET, but for all the other markers that are coming online for this as well. Uh, and therefore, it was really interesting to see your Rishi's comments on um, the fibroblast uh, markers as well. This is the sort of system that would work well with that. You would be able to then harness the information from the histology and feed it back into the PET and hopefully validate both systems. Um, in the future, I think what we should really be looking at is every resection specimen has information within it which should be used and co-registered with the pre-operative imaging. Um, I think it's the way forward uh, in terms of enhancing pre-operative imaging for diagnostic purposes. And as long as you have that information digitally, you can co-register the systems accurately and you can probe them and I think it's a very, very, very powerful assay tool, which should be very helpful in, in the future. It takes a lot of work, and um, I'm not saying that every specimen should be treated this way all of the time, but for the ones that we are looking at trying to use to harness information for new tracers, I think this is definitely the way forward. So as always, there are a few thank yous for the presentation, et cetera, and they are there. Um, and that's, I think that's me finished. I hope I'm on time. Stephen? Yep. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Craig. That was great. Um, I'm afraid we probably are up to our maximum time. Um, so I'm going to move on to Jeff, if that's okay, without any questions. Absolutely, crack on. For you doing this, and I know it's your son's birthday, so you're going to nip off. So um, have a good time tonight. I just need to point out that we did notice up on your whiteboard that it says um, "eat, sleep, ski, beer, and repeat." So and that was actually my son came in and wrote that. Right. Okay. Did notice that. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, Craig. So um, we'll move now on to um, Jeff, who um, is hopefully going to tie a lot of this together and show us how. We're using functional imaging already within um, modern radiotherapy clinical trials. So, Jeff, thanks very much for, for doing this talk for us. Great. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, okay, so I'm going to discuss just for the first couple of minutes some background work on how we identified our hypoxin-modifying drug and then how we've subsequently translated it into clinical studies that are utilising um, functional imaging, particularly a hypoxia PET-CT. Uh, I have no relevant commercial conflicts of interest in relation to any of the work I'm showing. Okay, so a little about hypoxia, first of all. Hypoxia occurs a lot of the time in uh, solid tumours. And we've known for about 60 years that hypoxia is associated, firstly, with really poor clinical outcomes, regardless of how patients are treated, but particularly um, it makes tumours very resistant to radiation. And this occurs really for two reasons. You have um, oxygen demand outstrip and oxygen supply is the bottom line. So you have metabolically very active tumours that consume lots of oxygen, but at the same time, the tumor vasculature is typically grossly abnormal. So if you look at this illustration on the top left, you can see the tumor vasculature is typically leaky, chaotic, and it's poorly functioning. So you have poor oxygen delivery. And all of this um, leads to hypoxia and radiation resistance. 
So there's this mismatch really between high oxygen consumption and poor oxygen supply. And lots of people in the past have tried combining radiotherapy with various different techniques to try to overcome tumor hypoxia. But all of these are focused essentially on the supply side and trying to increase oxygen. So for example, people have previously used things like oxygen mimetics like memorazole. They've tried combining therapy with things like vasodilators like carbogen and nicotinamide. Other people have used hyperbaric oxygen chambers. More recently, there have been attempts using uh, VEGF treatments such as bevacizumab to theoretically prune the tumor vasculature and make it more effective, and also using hypoxia-activated prodrugs like tyropazamine. And the reality is, is that none of these are in widespread um, clinical use, either because they have no efficacy or at best they have modest efficacy, and very often they have significant side effects. So they've only really dealt with one side, the attempt to try to increase oxygen supply. There's lots of reasons to think that, the, that trying to reduce oxygen consumption is a far more effective strategy. And so a few years ago in my lab, we set out to identify drugs that had this effect. We published this in Nature Communications about five years ago. And I'm just going to run through a couple of the key points here. So the rest of this talk focuses on this drug, a tovacrone that we identified. So if you look at the images on the bottom left, these are mouse tumor xenografts that have been resected uh, from two different tumor models, the FADU and the HCT116 model. The blue just shows the outline of the tumor, it's just a nuclear stain, but the bottom color shows EF5 stain, that lime green, intense lime green you can see in two of, the, two of these specimens. And those represent areas of hypoxia with EF5 staining. And the key point here is that in the control situation, the DMSO, so the non-drug treated situation, there's lots of hypoxia, as you typically see, when we treated the mice with the tovacrine for a few days, we eradicated hypoxia. And we found that when you combine this with radiotherapy, it has a synergistic effect. So this is a tumor growth delay study in mice. On the right-hand side, on the x-axis, it shows days of follow-up, and on the um, y-axis, tumor size. And, it's, and in this radiation-resistant model, we saw that either a tovacrine on its own or radiation on its own had no effect on the rate at which the tumors grew. But when we combined the two treatments, we saw significant radiosensitization. I'm not going to go into the details of how this drug works, but essentially it works by blocking complex three of the electron transport chain. So it directly blocks oxidative phosphorylation and how much oxygen tumor cells consume. Now, tovacrone is a drug that has been around and FDA approved for about 30 years for the uh, prophylaxis and treatment of malaria and also um, for the treatment of other parasitic infections. Because the drug's been around for so long, we recognize the pharmacokinetics very well. It typically takes about five days to hit steady state, but once it does, you can give it in really high concentrations. It has a good oral bioavailability, and one of the key points I always try to make when I discuss tovacrone is that it is not like most antimalarials. So it's not like things like larium and other unpleasant drugs. This has a, a really clean side effect profile. So having demonstrated its efficacy in the lab, we set up this trial um, called the ATOM trial, which was a tovacrone as a tumor hypoxia modifier. So this was a real proof of concept trial, um, which was done as a single center study in Oxford in a classic window of opportunity setup. So we took patients who had non-small cell lung cancer who were going to go for surgical resection. We took 30 patients here really trying to demonstrate the pharmacodynamic efficacy of this treatment in reducing hypoxia ahead of subsequent trials with radiotherapy. And I can discuss the reasons why I think this is important later on if that's relevant. 
But the key way we wanted to demonstrate the efficacy was to use functional imaging with F-MISO PET CT imaging. So this is probably the, the main way people have used in the past to quantify tumor hypoxia. So F-MISO is 18F-mycinidazole, it's a nitromidazole drug, um, which is, uh, it, it very slowly diffuses into cells, so it's not actively taken up. And that means it's a slow process and it gets reduced when it's, when it's taken up. Now, under normoxic conditions, it becomes reoxidized and diffuses out again. But under hypoxic conditions, the F-MISO stays reduced. It gets trapped within the tumor cells. It gets retained and you can use it as a, as a PET signal. From a radiotherapy point of view, the, the beauty of F-MISO is that F-MISO uptake increases at the same levels of hypoxia as radiation resistance occurs. So if you look at this graph on the right-hand side, on the x-axis, as we go from the right to the left, you're looking at decreasing oxygen pressures. You can see as you go to the left-hand side, as at the point at which F-MISO uptake starts increasing, that's the point at which the OER starts falling. So that's the point at which radiation resistance starts occurring. So it's an incredibly useful surrogate for regions of radiobiological hypoxia and radio, radio resistance. These are some images, that uh, some representative images um, from a single patient with uh, scanned dynamically. I mentioned that it's a slow scan. We typically have to inject over a four hour period. Um, so, so from four hours from the point of injection to scan acquisition. The analysis is much more complicated than FDG PET. We have to normalize the images to background tissue, either normal muscle, or in our case, we use the vasculature. And these are expensive studies. So because there's not widespread um, requirements for F-MISO, it costs about £3,000 for the tracer, about another £1,000 for the PET slot. And so it costs about £4,000 per scan per patient for each of these studies. And because of the uh, practical challenges of having a limited um, supplies of MISO, that, that also complicates things. But if you look at these images, you can see the, some of the reasons why we scan at a late point. So if you look at the 35 to 45 minute images at the top, you can see that there is still lots of um, F-MISO around the muscles that you can see around the scapula, for example, and the signal to noise ratio here is really very low. That improves significantly at two hours, but it's really only at four hours that the um, hypoxia of the tumor really stands out from the background muscle. So this is the study design that we did for the ATOM trial. So there were two cohorts of patients. Cohort one received a turbochrome, and cohort two was essentially a control group. And this is a busy slide, but the only thing I really want you to take from this is that prior to the patients taking a tobacrone, we did a battery of tests that included F-MISO PET-CT to establish the baseline hypoxia. The patients in cohort one then took the drug typically for about 14 days. Obviously, we didn't want to alter their surgical date, so it depended on, on when they could go to theatre. But prior to surgery, we repeated the F-MISO PET-CT to see whether the hypoxic volume had stayed the same, increased or decreased. Patients then went to theatre, and once the pathologists were finished with um, the sample, we were able to utilise the rest of the tumour resection. Cohort 2 was the control group. It had the exact same investigations, the exact same scans, but they did not receive a turbophone. And the reason why this is important is that there was essentially nothing in the literature to, to um, provide us with any information as to what happens to F-MISO uptake um, if you do two scans in patients two weeks apart. So this was an important control group for us. And these are some of the um, positive images that we saw in the patients who received a tobacrone. So three patients here, patient A, B, and C, 
On the left, you're looking at the baseline pre-etovacrone scans, with the red regions obviously being F-miso uptake and regions of tumor hypoxia, and on the right, the post-etovacrone images. And hopefully you can see in each of these three cases that um, hypoxia is significantly reduced after typically about 10 days to 14 days of the drug treatment. This is a waterfall plot of the, um, the, the two cohorts of patients. So if you look on the left, the patients treated with etovacrone, each of these bars represents change in hypoxia based on the baseline scan and then the repeat scan um, 10 days afterwards or so. And you can see that of the 15 patients in this cohort, 11 of them had reductions in tumor hypoxia. And some of these are really very striking indeed. And importantly, when you compare that to the uh, control group, you can see that there was a, this, this contrast with a tendency for hypoxia to increase, which is perhaps not surprising if you, you just leave the tumor in situ untreated for a two-week period. So there's a big difference between these two cohorts. We didn't just want to rely on the imaging for this confirmation that the drug was working. So we also, um, and this links in with the issue of, sort of modern pathology, we also did uh, RNA-seq on the tumors and looked at the expression of genes that are upregulated in response to tumor hypoxia. So this is a color um, representation on the top here. On the left-hand side under the turquoise ATO banner are the um, uh, gene expression profiles of patients who had a turbochrome and on the right-hand side of the control group. And the representation here is that the more blue the color, the less hypoxic the tumor is, and the more red the tumor is, the more hypoxic it is. And you can see just in the naked eye, there's very clear differences in the hypoxia gene expression levels of these tumors. And this is uh, summarized in the bottom using three, uh, four different uh, hypoxia gene expression signatures where the etovacrone treated patients are shown in the green bars with the median and interquartile range, and the uh, yellow shows the control group. You can see there's, there's strikingly statistically significant differences here in hypoxia gene expression profiles. I'm only going to mention this very briefly, but we also did lots of other functional imaging, including perfusion CT and DCE MRI. And we did not see any changes in any of the parameters for these uh, patients before and after drug treatment. And this is what we expected. So we really did this in order to see, does etovacrone alter tumor blood flow or are the effects that we're seeing independent of perfusion? And that appeared to be the case. We don't see any changes in tumor perfusion, and that's in keeping with the way in which we think etovacrone works by directly um, reducing oxygen consumption rather than altering the vasculature. So this has led on to us launching a subsequent study called the Arcadian trial, where we're now combining this drug with concurrent radical chemoradiotherapy in patients who have locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer. The drug itself, as I've mentioned, etovacrine is very safe, but because it's not been combined with chemoradiotherapy beforehand, the main endpoint from this is relating to safety. Again, this is a busy slide. I don't want anyone to, to get bogged down in the detail of this, but the key points from this is that, again, as with uh, the ATOM trial, we are taking a um, F-MISO baseline PET-CT scan of these patients prior to starting chemoradiotherapy, typically around the time when they're still having CT simulation and planning um, processes undertaken. They then start the etovacrone. They carried on for a couple of weeks. Uh, we repeat the FMISO PET-CT scan prior to them starting chemoradiotherapy, and they then continue with the etovacrone throughout the six and a half weeks of chemoradiation. So we're, continue we're continuing to check whether 
um, hypoxia is reduced in these patients with more locally advanced disease. So in summary, etovacrone is a safe and extremely well-tolerated drug that reduces hypoxia. Um, in our preliminary study um, with the ATOM trial, we showed a median reduction of 55% reduction in the hypoxic volume in lung cancer patients. And that's based not just on the FMISO imaging, but also on the gene expression profiling. The reduction in oxygen consumption rate is supported by the imaging findings that we don't see any alteration in perfusion. And really in our hands, FMISO is really important in us being able to stratify patients, but also assessing response to treatment. And the Arcadian trial continues to incorporate this imaging modality. So finally, I just need to acknowledge um, funding first of all. So um, the laboratory work was funded by Cancer Research UK. The ATOM trial was funded exclusively by the Howard Foundation and the Arcadian trials being supported also by Cancer Research UK. The laboratory work was done by a postdoc, Tom Ashton. The ATOM trial was led on a day-to-day -day basis by Michael Skorsky, and the Arcadian trials now led on a day-to-day -day basis by Dan McGowan and Edith Gallagher, and we're also running this in collaboration with um, the team in Edinburgh as well. And I'll stop there. Okay, Jeff, thanks very much. That was really interesting. Um, certainly learned quite a bit about the study that we're actually taking part in that um, SORCE is obviously leading on. Um, can you tell me, um, so the FMISO, you're doing the FMISO scan before and you're doing two. So is that to try and understand, is there a difference between, um, you know, if you do a scan on a Monday, is it going to be exactly the same as a scan on a Friday or is there some variation in the oxygenation of the tumour on a day-to-day -day basis? Do we know that with FMISO or is this just to see whether or not your atovacone is making a change? So it's mainly to see whether the atovacone is making a change, but the control group, we did want to see what happens over a period of time. So, you know, you, there, there was a theoretical argument that if you do two scans in quick succession, that you may see an artificial reduction in FMISO uptake that could falsely lead you to thinking there's a reduction in hypoxia but that is not the case we clearly see that if you if you do nothing the hypoxia increases okay and what about the other hypoxia trace you've gone for fmiso but there's FASA as well do you know is, is that, was it just ease of choice or was it um how did you pick an fmiso so i think uh fmiso probably more accessible for us uh, you you'll see different people in the literature prefer different traces we had one patient who we did with FASA rather than FMISO just because of a, a tracer failure and we actually didn't see as good images with FASA but that's an N of one I don't I don't think there's a huge difference they all have the same similar problems that they've got low signal to noise ratio and they have to take a long time to, to be done and they're expensive and if you um you know with this work you know if this works you know, Tovacone is obviously the, your drug that you're using. Do you have any other targets that you might want to also, other drugs that you might want to combine with this? Or would you just stick with your Tovacone and move that into, you know, a bigger phase trial? Is that the plan? So, so, so ideally we'll move this into bigger phase trial, assuming we don't see any toxicity. The, the problem we have, I guess, is that it's a repurposed drug. So there's no one standing to make money from this. So eventually we will have to go to a charity and ask for several million pounds worth to do a binary yes no study with this so you know hopefully that will work but my lab is also making other drugs um, that we hope will be a backup to this that we could have intellectual property and could potentially commercialize if needed in order to eventually get it into patients and, and make it happen 
I suppose I hadn't thought about that. So that would be a bit of a problem then if you if you do want to take it to a bigger study, because it's going to be a big trial. Um, would you be looking for um, survival endpoints in a large trial, or would you be just be looking for changes in oxygenation of the tumour? No, you... you're going to have to have hard clinical endpoints ultimately, so it's going to, to realistically have to be overall survival. Um, I think you can do that, and there's, there's actually charities in Europe in particular that are looking at funding big drug repurposing projects and drug trials. Um, and, you know, we have been able to do it so far. I mean, the, the ATOM trial, which, you know, is only 30 patients, cost something like £600,000, which we're able to, to, to get funding for. So I think you can do it, but it, but it isn't straightforward. And what about um, dose painting? Does that come into this at all? Could you, would you start to see subvolumes within tumours after a period that maybe are remaining more hypoxic than other areas that maybe change? And should we be looking at radiotherapy and dose painting in some way, do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm personally a bit of a sceptic about dose painting. I'm not convinced that you can really dose escalate enough to overcome true radiobiological hypoxia. You know, giving three times the dose to subregions, I'm not convinced about. People have tried it in the past in glioma, for example, and it's never really been effective. I think you can you can use it for that. I guess the, the problem is that FMISO is probably a more reliable marker for chronic hypoxia rather than reflecting acute hypoxia. So you might need something like you know, oxygen enhancing MRI for you to go down that route where you can image more frequently. Okay, great. Right, well, thanks very much, Jeff. Um, I think that's us um, come to the end of the, the three talks. We've, we've only got a minute left. Um, I think I've got a couple of closing slides um, to talk about. So, um, yep, that's our... Um, talk or webinar closed for today and um, our next webinar is on the 24th of March at the same time also Thursday um, and it's titled lung cancer and um, diagnostics so hopefully um, everybody would be able to, um, to to join in for that so thank you very much to the three speakers um, I think it's been really interesting and um, there's lots of science there and lots of um, new um, things to think about um, as we go forward with more technical radiotherapy. Um, so thanks to Jeff, Rishi um, and Craig. Um, on that, I will um, sign off and wish everybody a very good evening and a nice weekend that's coming. Good night.